tetragrammaton. What are the major pollutants that get dumped into water, and who dumps it? Well, that depends where you are. You know, I spend time with farmers in the Midwest who can't drink their water from their wells anymore because agricultural uh, chemicals are have contaminated the groundwater, and uh, you know they're part of the, the dispossessed in this country. This this entire generation that's being uh, you know that's being mass poisoned and uh, and then mass propagandized, um, and so. You know, that's sort of the drinking water, I would say, the biggest contaminant is agriculture runoffs in most part of the country, but it depends where you are. It's really community like New York City's drinking water comes from three upstate reservoir systems, and two of them are fantastic. And then one of them, the smallest one, the Croton system, has 102 sewage treatment plants discharging into it. And, uh, you know, on a dry year, 2% of the water that comes out of your tap has been through a sewer plant. There's no filtration. So, and that water now contains uh, all kinds of, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals. So you're, they're finding these sub-therapeutic levels of hormones, of birth control pills, of all kinds of hormones and all kinds of antidepressants and psychoactive drugs, you know, Prozac, et cetera, in public water supplies all over the country. And the, the water supply, almost no water supply, has the kind of carbon filtration system that you would need to filter that out. And, you know, in terms of non-drinking water, you know, probably the most serious pollutants are actually nutrients or nitrogen, phosphates, potassium, which cause algae blooms, which then rob the water of its oxygen. And they biologically impoverish these aquatic ecosystems so that, you know, because during certain times of the year, there'll be zero dissolved oxygen and the water supply is gone. And then, you know, if we're looking at pollutants of concern, uh, probably one of the biggest concerns that we should be, uh, that we should have are, is mercury as uh, coming from coal burning power plants. It also comes from cement kilns, uh, from some mining activities that has now, every freshwater fish in the United States now has dangerous levels of mercury in its flesh. So we're living like in a science fiction nightmare today where my children, the children of every other American can now no longer engage in the seminal primal activity of American youth, which is to go fishing in their local fishing hole and then come home and safely eat the fish. And that, you know, to me as a kid, that would have been unimaginable that somebody would be allowed to pollute every fish in our country, but it's become normalized now. And is this a global problem or is this a U.S. Yeah, problem? Yeah, no, it's global. I mean, the, the worst offender is China. That's the, you know, the, just so you know, the local, I should say the global fish market has changed in your lifetime and mine. Now there's aquaculture where they actually have to now farm the fish because we've polluted the water so badly that we have to wall it off. I mean, that's that's our legacy. Yeah, and the farm-fed fish, the stuff they're feeding them is heavily contaminated with, you know. Yeah, you clean the water up and then you ruin it with bad food. I would rather eat a wild-caught salmon than a farm-fed salmon in terms of their toxic loads. 
it's better to eat a wild fish. But still, the wild fish, you know, have like really dangerous levels of mercury in them and other contaminants as well. It's, uh, you know, it's depressing the world that we're giving to our kids. I just read something about a program where millions of genetically modified mosquitoes are being released yeah, in different places of the world. That's insane. I mean, I don't even know how to talk about it. I <laughs> say it's insane. It's, it's, but it goes so exactly many, to what he just how said. How could about, that go wrong? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, how can it go right? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. it, and it's Bill Gates, you know, funding all those bizarre experiments. And, you know, they, I, I don't know if it's a coincidence, but, you know, they did it in South Florida. And for the first time in, in decades, they had malaria outbreaks in I South Florida. I didn't know Florida. that. Yeah. I didn't know that. But I don't know if they're connected or they're no, coincidental. We, don't know. we, we but, can't know, but it's interesting correlation. Yeah. Anytime you mess with a decentralized network, you create a centralized problem. How is something like releasing millions of mosquitoes legal to do? It should be illegal. I mean, it should be, but, but all you, you can get a permit. If you get if you do the environmental impact statement, you do you know all of the studies that you're supposed to do, then there's a bureaucrat who can say, yeah, do this, but it just doesn't make any sense. Nobody with any kind of knowledge of ecology would let that happen. And, you know, I mean, I, I understand, you know, what the some of the experiments are are benign, are you know more kind of benign and maybe conceptually okay, that might be okay. Which, are, for example, you release male mosquitoes that are sterile and don't know they're sterile, and the male mosquitoes don't bite people. It's only the females; they need a blood meal in order to create their eggs. Oh, if you release tens of millions of male mosquitoes, they are going to breed with the females and the eggs will be infertile. So that was a way to dampen uh, production. That is the theory. Of course, that can go wrong in a million ways. The really bad things are the ones that are just bad conceptually, which is you create a vaccine and you, um, you, and, uh, you give it to the mosquito, and the mosquitoes then go out and vaccinate the population. So if you get bit by a mosquito, you're getting an antigen, a protein antigen from a virus, like a- How I, do you control the dosage? Well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, there, it, what happens if you get 100 mosquito bites? Uh, I mean, I think they're not really interested in controlling their dosage. They're interested in controlling vaccine hesitancy, and that's the complete. Yeah. solution to that because you're, you're getting bit by a mosquito and you don't you can't say no there was another plan to uh to deal with global warming by blocking out the sun have you heard that yeah. one i'm against all ge geoengineering projects including all the carbon capture projects they're all boondog i mean i I can't say they're all flim-flams because, you know, I, I don't know them all, but I, all the ones that I see and the ones that we're spending tens of billions of dollars on are wasteful flim-flams, and we should spend that money would be much better spent helping farmers transition to regenerative agriculture. Most of the problems we've talked about come back to a profit motive. Someone has a profit incentive, and that's what makes them do bad things. And I've heard people talk about it as that's just the nature of capitalism. What is your feeling about that? Yeah, the problem is not capitalism. The problem is, uh, it's not, let me put it this way, it's not free market capitalism. It's corporate crony capitalism. 
And, you know, I, actually, I've always said that the, the best thing for the environment would be true free market capitalism, because in a, a true free market would promote efficiency, and efficiency means the elimination of waste and pollution is waste. In a true free market, um, we would be forced to properly value our natural resources, and it's the undervaluation of those resources that caused us to use them wastefully. And in a true free market, you can't make yourself rich without making your neighbors rich and without enriching your community. But what polluters do is they make themselves rich by making everybody else poor. How would that system work? How could you make well, you, that system it, work? It, it would work uh, because you force, you force every actor in the marketplace to internalize all their costs. You know, when General Electric Company wants to produce a capacitator or a transformer, it's cheaper for it to dump its PCBs into the Hudson River, the excess PCBs, right? It's, it's cheaper than properly collecting them and, and reusing them. It's illegal for them to do it, but they're able to use the political clout to escape the licensing uh, strictures and therefore to escape the discipline of the free market. In a true free market, you bring all of, you you internalize all your costs. So every cost that it takes to get your product to market, you have to pay. And but what polluters do is they figure out ways to externalize their costs, not to dump their and that includes the cost includes cleaning up after yourself, which was a lesson we were all supposed to have learned in kindergarten. What you know, all pollution is is a subsidy where polluters figure out a way to externalize their cause and get the public to shoulder the burden of bringing their product to market. And by doing that, they can lower their price artificially and send the wrong signals to the market. And it distorts the whole marketplace and none of us gets the advantages of the efficiency and the prosperity and the democracy that free market capitalism otherwise promises our country. You show me a polluter, I'll show you a subsidy. I'll show you a fat cat using political clout to escape the discipline of the free market and force the public to pay his production costs. That's what all pollution is. And we have laws that make it illegal to do that, but the agencies are there at this point to abet the polluter in escaping those laws. So the problem is corruption. Yeah, it's the not, problem it's not is capitalism. corruption rather than capitalism. I love capitalism. I, I think, you know, it liberates the human spirit and it, it, you know, it's the corruption of capitalism that caused us, that caused all the problems. What changes have you made personally in your life that had the biggest impact on you? To me, well, getting sober had the biggest impact on me. How long ago was that? Uh, in 1983, so 40 years ago. Wow. Amazing. Uh, that caused me you know, to do a, a complete, let's say, spiritual realignment. And recovery is part of my day-to-day -day life. I go to a meeting every day, and I've integrated that, you know, the whole meditation and, uh, you know, trying to maintain that spiritual connection, um, which is, I would say, the primary governing feature of my life. How do you stay in conscious contact with God? How do you work with, you know, one foot in the, spiritual world in one and they uh you know in the the visible world and that's our challenge you know the yes. challenge how do you stay in that posture of subduing self-will and surrendering self-will 
Um, and, you know, somebody said to me yesterday that uh, we're not humans having a spiritual experience. We're, we're spirits having a human experience. And that, to me, is a good way of looking at it because it means everything is kind of a test, you know, of your, um, of your capacity to, to maintain that posture of surrender and stay, you know, in that spiritual realm, you know, that living that life of integrity and all the things that that, that, that requires. What is something that you believed when you were younger that you don't believe anymore? Um, you know, there's institutions that I've lost faith in that I was very idealistic about, and I would say naive about when I was younger. And then um, I think I'm a lot less likely now to break particularly conflicts that you see around the world into binary formulations. Yeah, good guy, bad guy. Yeah. It's more complicated. To be, you know, to always understand that, you know, most human beings are good people and that. Um, they have, uh, you know, different set of assumptions, but they're all kind of, we want the same thing. I mean, even Republicans and Democrats these days, you know, I would say that I, I grew up with a kind of binary idea and that, you know, those categories are now breaking down so radically right now that, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting. How is the experience of running for office different than you imagined it would be? It's much funner. Really? Yeah. Why do you think? Fun. I mean, the biggest thing for me is that my wife is enjoying it. And, you know, she was really frightened of it. And uh, there's just really good energy on the trail. We're getting huge crowds. We have 250,000 volunteers, which is more than anybody else. And um, I just, I like it. I enjoy doing it. And I've been on a lot of campaigns in my life, and they were always difficult, and this is just much easier. Have you been surprised by some of the people who are supporting you and by some of the people who are not supporting you? I'm not going to say I'm surprised because I've been living with this since 2005, losing friendships, of losing, you know, I lost a lot of business relationships. I lost political uh relationships that I developed over my whole lifetime because of my position on on these public health issues. Um, so I'm not surprised by it. Um, some people have surprised me. I mean, there's three particular friends of mine who disappointed me, let's say. I mean, I tend to just accept everything as how it's supposed to be, so I don't. Yeah. It and is. I don't complain about anything. <laughs> yeah. But they were relationships that were very important to me and that um, were the, people literally walked away from it, said, I'm walking away from this relationship. But otherwise, you know, I, I have four of my family members who are, who, you know, have spoken out publicly against me. Um, and that, I suppose, was was surprising, but I also understand where they're coming from. And, you know, I understand everybody is, uh, you know, filled with fear and confusion about this issue. So I, I let that go and just say, you know, uh, I hope the best for everybody. And, uh, and I love people who don't agree with me. Tell me about natural resources that get privatized. How does that happen? You know, one of the essential doctrines in democracy was, you know, for, I think, 2,800 years, the Code of Justinian was one of the first efforts at constitutional governance. And the Code of Justinian was, uh, 
was a it was a constitution in ancient Rome that said that that stated something that everybody innately understood. This concept that those things that cannot be easily reduced to private property ownership, but by their nature are the assets of community, um, can never be privatized. So that they included air, water, wildlife, fisheries, public lands, the wandering animals. And there were some forests that were something equivalent to national forests in ancient Rome. Those were, you know, for the public. Um, and also um, the aquifers, which they also recognize in ancient Rome. And what the Code of Justinian said, everybody owns those, uh, those assets. Um, everybody gets to use them. Uh, nobody gets to use them in a way that will diminish or injure their use and impact by others. So you can take your share, uh, but you can't take all of it, right? And uh, in ancient Rome, if uh, no matter whether you're rich or poor, or humble or noble, uh, white or black, uh, you know, which there, there was Africans who were citizens of Rome and uh, and Europeans. If you had that gift of citizenship, then you had an absolute right to cross a beach throw in a net, take out your share of the fish, the emperor himself couldn't stop you. And that was a central right. And, but what happens whenever democracy begins to decline, you see um, uh, uh, elite entities, powerful entities that come in and begin privatizing what is called the commons or the public trust assets, which are these assets. So, when Rome collapsed in three, uh, 375 AD, I think the burning of the Library of Alexandria, then we had 800 years of sort of darkness. You had feudal kings and local lords and war, you know, um, and uh, warrior knights who were, would, who were, began privatizing the public trust. So for example, in England, King John said that the the deer, the game animals, um, and the rabbits, and these that once belonged to all the people, and now um, were the possession of the barons and the lords who own that property. So, and that's what got him in trouble with Robin Hood, right? because the deer and the rabbits were the social safety net at that time. They didn't have social security or unemployment, but if your crop didn't come in, you could go feed your family by killing a deer. Now that became illegal. He also privatized uh, uh, transport on the, the Thames and the other rivers of England. He erected navigational tolls and gave the rights to collect tolls to powerful allies. And he also uh, gave the fisheries uh, so the fish in the Thames and the other, you now had to pay somebody a license to harvest those. And these were all social safety nets that had belonged to the public. And those reforms caused the public to rise up and they confronted uh, King John at the Battle of Runnymede and they forced him to sign the Magna Carta, which is called, the full name of it is the Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest. And it's the Bethlehem of all of our Bill of Rights in this country but it also um, provides for, um, you know, free and total public access to rivers, to waters, and to public trust assets. And those rights descended to the people of this country when we had the revolution in our country. Um, and in fact, you know, up until 1847, it was the law in every jurisdiction in the United States that if you owned a factory and smoke from your factory got 
into my house as little as one day a year. I had an absolute right to close down your factory because you were trespassing you. Yeah. on my property, right? And, and on the public property. Yeah. And those laws, in, you know, in order to make way for the Industrial Revolution, those laws were gradually, were quickly eroded at that point um, by government officials, by judges, and by others. And it became much easier to trample on the, that, that right of the, that public trust doctrine was eroded and corroded. Um, but uh, after Earth, and, and then, you know, we, we got to a point where the pendulum swung so far the other way. By 1969, which was a key year, that year the Cuyahoga River burned uh, with flames that were so high. Explain how a river burns. It, it's, it, it's hard it to understand. It has chemicals and gasoline Things on the in surface. it that shouldn't be in it, my friend. It was a Clean Air Act in, in 1600 in England that had, was a capital offense that made it a crime to burn coal in a London stone. People are executed for it. And it's always been a crime to pollute water. You know, but those laws were eroded, and then you know, um, so the Cuyahoga River burns with flames are eight stories high. They can't put it out. There's a coating of chemicals, hydrocarbons all over the water. Um, that same year, Lake Erie was declared dead. Zero dissolved oxygen. All the fish life disappeared. This is '69. '69. Uh, the the uh, Santa Barbara oil spill happens that year. Closed all the beaches and cost billions of dollars the economy of Southern California. And you know the the uh, the, the eastern Adam peregrine falcon, the most spectacular predatory bird in America, went extinct. Um, it was declared extinct that year. And um, uh, and all of these insults drove twenty million Americans out onto the street in 1970. That's the biggest, largest public demonstration in American history. And it scared the. Um, you know, the, the political uh, classes to death, both Republican and Democrat. And over the next uh, 10 years, they passed 28, 11 years, 28 environmental laws, the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, CERCLA, RICRA, Safe Drinking Water Act, the Mining Act, all of these acts that were designed to reestablish those old public trust rights that had been eroded since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And so none of them were actually new laws. They were actually just codification of laws that had been, you know, extant since, since Roman times. Wow. And it was a restatement. And each one of those laws, you know, we knew when we wrote them that uh, the industries would be able to come in and capture the agencies. And we, we created EPA then, et cetera. You know, Nixon was pre president. But we knew that the industry was going to come capture the agencies and disable the enforcement mechanism. So each one of those laws contains a citizen supervision that says if the government fails to enforce this law, any citizen can step into the shoes of the United States attorney and wow. prosecute uh, polluters and for fines now it's $33,000 a day and get all your attorney's fees back. And that was my bread and butter for the first 30 years of my, you know, I was suing people under the, I brought over 500 lawsuits under those, you know, those laws, those statutes. And Has it changed since then? Well, I've changed because now I'm doing more 
plaintiff's laws, you could never really change behavior with those statutes because the fines were so little. And, you know, these companies are making billions of dollars by cheating, by polluting. And, you know, the courts uh, would only give us, you know, a million dollars would be a huge, huge judgment. And, but, so for me, you know, I moved into doing plaintiff's work in the, you know, early 2000, I started suing these companies on behalf of people who were injured and getting, you know, big settlement. I mean, I want my first case that I actually argued myself uh, was uh, against a, a, a DuPont smelter, zinc smelter in, in Spelter, West Virginia. They had poisoned 10,000 families and I got one of the biggest judgments from a jury. I think I got $643 million. You know, the judges reduce those so you don't end up getting all that money. But, you know, it was a huge, it was a huge, against a big company, DuPont. It was a very, very big judgment at that time. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like, a, I'm in a different world now. And this actually can change corporate behavior because you win, you know, I, if I want a suit under the Clean Water Act, the, I don't even know if the CEO of DuPont would know that I brought that suit because it's a, you know, it's such pen, a drop in the bucket. It's a drop yeah. in the bucket. It's not even a rounding error for, you know, yeah. uh, and, but you get $643 million or $2.2 billion judgment, and that, uh, and the lawyer on that case has the CEO on speed dial, and, you know, the entire board is sitting in a boardroom somewhere waiting for that to come back. And they hear that judgment, and they, you know, somebody says, uh, we got to change. So, it, it, to me, it was a much more potent weapon, you know, and I started... Uh, I'm doing a lot more of those plaintiff suits, and um, and uh, and you know the, the the groups that are doing them, the uh, plaintiff trial lawyers, are a group that I was very compatible with because they're all kind of uh, they're you know they're alpha personalities who are you know committed to uh, poor and powerless people. Their whole lives are about that, and they're super smart, and you know and. Uh, and they, and they're like uh, you know they're they're army of, and they know how to win wars against these big shots. They're not just fighting for crumbs. It's existential to some of these companies. You read my you read the Fauci book. The Fauci book was spectacular. My life has been taken apart by the pre-Fauci story. Why? Because I happened to do training in a place where nefarious things were done that set the conditions of existence for what you wrote in the Fauci book. Now, you know about Operation Paperclip, you know about MKUltra, but do you know that it was done on the floors of Tulane neurosurgery and neurology? That's across the street from where I did my residency at LSU. They're separate medical schools, but LSU and Tulane neurosurgery, when I went through, we were kind of combined program. And I had heard all these stories about, you know, some crazy stuff that went on in the neurosurgery department, you know, in the 50s and 60s. So, of course, I asked questions. I'm a guy from New York, so I'm, I'm interested in finding this stuff out. And long story short, I started to begin to hear the stories about a lab that was on Magazine Street that was tied to the Tulane neurosurgery, Tulane neurology work that was being done. Early in my residency, um, this, is, this will show you how old I am. 
we used to do basilar tip aneurysm surgery. And back then, we didn't have endovascular stuff, so we had to split people's chest open to stop their heart to clip the aneurysm in their brain. So the gentleman who actually was the cardiovascular surgeon who did that was John Oshner. That's the son of Alton Oshner. And J.O. was a, a Southern, he was a pretty quirky guy, but he was pretty chatty. And one of the questions that I had after my first two years at Charity Hospital, what started all this is Oliver Stone filmed JFK, my intern year. So I was in the emergency room when they filmed that movie. So this is the reason why all this stuff percolated up. So I go to Oshner. And one of the villains in that movie was Ferry. Right. Who had worked in that lab. Right. And but, had a lab in his own house. Well, Ferry is the most interesting one that ties to your Fauci book. And that's the reason I asked you, did your dad ever tell you anything about the death of Ferry, because one of the things you know about your uncle's death that I always found amazing is that the only place that anybody ever came to trial was in New Orleans because of the Clay Shaw link. Because of Jim Garrison. Right, but, but Jim Garrison went after Shaw and not Oshner. He knew about Oshner. And I don't know if you know that, that's part of the reason why I really want to discuss this with you because when Ferry was killed, your dad actually called. You know who Ferry was? Just from the movie. He was a pilot who had trained in the Air National Guard in Louisiana with Lee Harvey Oswald when Oswald was very young. I think he started training as a pilot when he was 16 years yeah, old. The, on the North Shore of Louisiana. Yeah, and then Ferry became a pilot for the... Eastern Airlines. The, yeah, but he was a pilot for the CIA doing uh, gun running to Cuba. And in uh, Jim Douglas's book, The Unspeakable, he was the pilot who was in Dallas on November 22nd when my uncle was killed uh, and was allegedly transporting people, um, you know, some of the people who were involved, including... Uh, some of the people who were involved in my uncle's killing. I did killing. not know that. Yeah, and so, and he was also involved with Dr. Ashville. He had kind of a satellite lab at his own house, and when he was killed or died. Well, that, that, that's the funny part. Your dad calls yeah, to ask, Nick Chetta. Yeah, and I remember that. My father called the coroner to try to figure out whether it was an accidental death or a natural death or whether it was suicide. I, a lot of this stuff, you know, I'm, I've, I'm, I'm reaching back for, uh, for years. Um, he was an interesting guy. Because he was a very strange looking man because he, when he had- Alopecia area. He had alopecia, so he, he painted uh, black thick eyebrows on himself and he had a, a very weird, bad, bad toupee. And he was part of this, um, of the gay mafia in uh, New Orleans, which was also part of a, uh, a Cuban underground that was linked to the mafia. There were three mob families. Traficante, uh, who was from Tallahassee, Giancana, who was from Chicago, and Carlos Marcello, who was the New Orleans Dallas boss. And he was... Uh, uh, I think he was a he was a Libyan or Algerian. Correct. And my father actually 
had him deported repeatedly. Once he had him deported barefoot to the to the jungle in Guatemala, um, and he was in a jury trial that my father was, you know, trying to. Um, the day that my uncle was killed, he was on trial. All of those bosses my father was prosecuting, they had all been involved with the casinos in Havana. And so when Bill Harvey, who was the head of the Miami station, recruited, they wanted to get somebody to kill Castro. They went to the mafia. They went through a, uh, a mobster called Johnny Roselli, who... Um, who then became the liaison to the three big families. And they then, you know, all became involved in training with the Cubans, first for the Bay of Pigs, and then later on for, you know, um, these were the people who were involved in President Kennedy's death. And just so you know, Ferry was one of the pilots that was involved in the Bay of Pigs. He was actually yeah. shot down. So that's the reason why he was anti-Kennedy, because he didn't get the air support. The other big part of the story is, how does a guy who's a defrocked priest, fired from Eastern Airlines, wind up working <laughs> with the best cancer researcher in the world in Mary Stewart? Who was the person that put this together? Well, Jim Garrison had the pieces. The key piece was Clay Shaw was one of the neocons that worked for the CIA who had a direct link and this is the really interesting part of this. When Ferry was killed, his dad calls Nick Chetta. Ferry called up and said, you just killed me. Correct. He called up, I think Garrison released his name. He did. And he called up Garrison and he, he said, you just killed me, I'm a dead man. And then the next day he was, he was dead. dead. Wow. Of natural yes. causes. So wild. Yeah, I mean the best book on this, I don't know if you've read it, but it's a book called The Unspeakable by Jim Douglas. And I think the two that I brought you today, I think you're going to Those like. are very good, but Douglas is in a different realm. I've read the, both those books. Is that right? Yeah, and Douglas is in a utterly different realm. He's, he is uh, an extra, every word is documented. Um, and what he's done, you know, the Warren Commission had very, very little uh, data available. Since then, there's been probably a million pages of documents released, and many of the people who are involved in my uncle's death have made confessions, probably 20 of them. Oh, and that, none of that was available in 64 during the Warren Commission, and none of it was available in 79 during the House Elect Assassinations Committee investigation, which was much more thorough than the Warren Commission. The House select assassinations committee concluded that it was a conspiracy and that um, Bob Blakey, who was the chief counsel of that commission, believed that it was probably, that it was the, a more mob than CIA, but had later retracted that, has since retracted that, and now says uh, that he is convinced that there was CIA involvement. So but 20, all of the other people 20 on people this, admitted that they were I, part of it. Yeah, I mean, p people like E. Howard Hunt, um, who was one of the who was in the who admitted being in, in on the initial planning stages? He didn't admit involvement in the end. He said I was there with Bill Harvey, and I wasn't. I didn't. He said he didn't want to get involved because Bill Harvey, but he said the plan um, that that plan had evolved into my uncle's assassination. Uh, David Morales, who is the uh, chief hitman for the CIA. He did the operation 
Phoenix program after my uncle's death he killed 25,000 people, I believe, in Vietnam. Um, and he uh, was later, uh, uh, you know, and then and then he later died under mysterious circumstances. He died of. You're gonna uh, find that's a recurrent theme. It's an unbelievable fact that we're still living in this numb, propagandized environment. It's because it's effective. Also, you know, it was illegal for the CIA to propagandize American people. That was in its charter. It's an, an act called the Smith-Mund Act that made it illegal. And then in, then they admitted it, you know, when it came out in the church, church committee. Commission, right. it came, they admitted it, and they, and, uh, you know, a lot of articles that were very alarmed and critical of it. And so the CIA at that point promised that they would stop doing that. They remain today, um, admittedly, the largest funder of journalism worldwide. So they pumped $10 billion in through USAID to fund newspapers, uh, newspaper uh, journalists, uh, television, et cetera. They own uh, television stations. They own... Uh, newspapers in all over the developing world and in Europe, and they control them. They're the biggest funder of journalism in the world under USAID. But and in 2016, Obama changed the uh, ex issued an executive order that appears to overrule the Smith Mundt Act and allowed the CIA to once again propagandize American people. So today, you know, you're seeing all these, and we've done, you know, articles that show the elevation of, of people who are clearly part of the national security state um, to run uh, major, you know, magazines and newspapers, including the Daily Beast, uh, Salon, Slate, Rolling Stone, the guy who now, you know, Rolling Stone was the counterculture magazine. Um, and it's now run by a guy called Noah Schlackman. Jan Wenner was, was pushed out. Noah Schlackman uh, now runs it, and he has deep uh, you know, credentials and background in a national security state. And so then you see the reporting and places like National Geographic, Scientific American, a lot of the you know, press that has kind of foreign uh, orientation will Will, you know, is is run, but you'll see that they're that they were all, you know, COVID alarmists. They were all very uh, pro-vaccine. Uh, you know, dismissive any any kind of questioning, and um, and they're all pro-war, pro-Ukraine. You know, but any war that they're they're pro. So you can see these kind of propaganda um, threads uh, uh, that dominate those news organs and. Um, you know, we've done a series of articles showing the, you know, the links between those magazines and the and the national security apparatus. The propaganda is a huge problem. Yeah. You know, both in centralized medicine, but also in what you've been doing. You know, as an environmental lawyer, but now running for president. So I'm going to ask you a question. A lot of Bitcoiners want me to ask you. It's pretty clear that you know that war is expensive. What do you think the connection between November 22nd, 1963 is, and 1971, and Nixon well, I, removing I, the gold standard? My uncle was worried about fiat currency, and you know, fiat currency was invented to fund war. 
Correct. That was its whole purpose. And my uncle was uh, worried about it. Um, and in uh, just before he died, he he tried to reattach our currency to our, our greenbacks to a base currency. Right. So he issued gold certificates, silver certificates. When I was a kid, those were, you know, you could, you could see them and it was kind of the thrill that you could actually redeem this, this bill for gold or silver. Um, and they, I, I think they only lasted a year or something yeah. after he died. Uh, but then in 71, Nixon decouples, um, you know, the current, our paper currency from the gold standard. And that was sort of the beginning, I think, you know, in many ways, the beginning of, of the end. And it was also, the, he did it to fund the Vietnam War. Correct. That's why most of the Bitcoiners want to know from you, since you're now running for president, we have to make decisions. We love that you came out for Bitcoin. People want to know how you learned about Bitcoin. Was it endogenously because of what happened through your I mean, family? I, I have teenage kids and 20, 20, 30 year old kids. So they, you know, I heard about Bitcoin. But I became interested in it during COVID because I saw what happened in Canada during the trucker strike. Right. Where you had truckers from all over Canada. It's very, very diverse. The truckers in Canada are very diverse. There's a lot of blacks, Asian. It was not, a, you know, the, they, they later deliberately tried to portray it as kind of a right-wing revolt, but it wasn't. The truckers were being ordered to comply with all kinds of mandates, including vaccines. And they protested, and they started a, uh, a parade of trucks from, the, from Alberta and B.C. all the way across the country, and they ended up in uh, Ottawa in the capital. It was a very peaceful demonstration. They, were, they just wanted to meet with Trudeau. And if you look at the videos of the demonstration, they were, um, it was like Woodstock. They were, you know, they were doing garbage pickups. They were doing uh, cookouts and feeding the poor. They, it was really kind of this very magnanimous, idealistic movement. And there were efforts to portray it as right wing. And in fact, there are people, on two occasions, people went in with Confederate flags wearing baklava and military boots. So, uh, and the truckers chased them out. And yet that was the picture of the Confederate flags that ended up in the newspaper. So, um, so Trudeau uh, says, declines to meet with them and says they're dangerous, that they're right wing. And he then does something that I had warned about a few months before I had gone to Milan, and I had read about what was happening with central bank digital currencies in China, uh -huh. where they had now programmable currencies, which means that if you fall below a certain score on your social credit score, you get punished. So if you didn't have a mask on over your nose during a, a mandatory mask day, you'd be seen on facial recognition systems, which are everywhere in China. They deduct from your or social credit scores, or if you get too next too close to your girlfriend during a, a social distancing day, they penalize you. And the way they penalize you is that your credit card won't work anymore, except within grocery stores within a certain radius of your home. Won't let you so get you, on airplanes. Won't let you yeah, get on subways. Won't or let anything. you buy gasoline for your car. Won't let you you know get on subways or anything else. And this so, exists now. You're saying. 
It's in China. It's in China. But about a month before Canada, I was in Milan, and I was, and they were doing vaccine passports. They were imposing them, and I said, "The second that you allow them to do that, is the vaccine passport has all your medical records, but it has other things like it can have your financial records, etc." I said, the second that you do that, every right that you have suddenly becomes a privilege that is contingent upon your compliance with a government mandate. And I said, here's how they're going to enforce it. They're going to give you a social credit score. It sounds paranoid, but I said, that's what they're doing in China. So don't let them do it here. And then a month later, the in Canada, uh, Trudeau then has all these truckers, they, you know, none of them have been charged, but they use facial recognition system and they use surveillance systems to, to get the license plates on their cars, on their trucks. They know who they are and they freeze all their bank accounts. And it's, it's illegal. illegal isn't yeah, it? I mean, because not, these not guys in have never Canada. Been, they changed the law. Yeah, they changed the because law. Because of this happening, Trudeau actually invoked something to allow this to go on. And the craziest part is the rest of the people in the legislature allowed it to go on. Yeah. And these guys use Bitcoin to survive this event. That's the, the yeah, point. Not only that, but they collected on PayPal. They, they collected millions of dollars from a fund. From people all over the world, I sent 20 bucks. It's like a GoFundMe. And PayPal froze it and confiscated it. Has that ever happened before? No. So I, at that point, Understand I Understand what like, centralization, oh, why it's a problem? I immediately saw with a lot of clarity that transactional freedom is as important as freedom of expression because if the government can starve you to death, you know, uh, it, you know, freedom of speech becomes irrelevant. If they can take your mortgage, if they can put you and your children on the street, if they can put, I mean, I had one of these truckers tell me that he couldn't pay his alimony and it, and the police were coming after him. So he, he, you know, because Trudeau had frozen his bank account, he was now in jeopardy of losing his freedom altogether. And at that point, that's when I said, okay, you know, Bitcoin is a way, because they were also, if you remember, during COVID, they started to say, oh, paper currency is spread germs. And the ATMs started disappearing in a lot of countries. They took away the ATMs. I could see they're trying to shift us to, you know, all digital currencies, you know, and Precondition what you really want. Yeah. That's the goal. And the, the reason why I'm glad he's talking about this is because you know, in the Bitcoin community, people have said, well, we think Bobby Kennedy just has learned about Bitcoin from David Bailey. And I said, I don't think that that's the case. I want to ask him directly, not only how this ties to his family, what happened in 63, 71, but the stuff Who's that's- David Bailey? David Bailey is a, a big Bitcoiner. Uh, well, I'm glad that you're saying that too, <laughs> because that makes me even more happy because it sounds like you came to this endogenously and realized that this is an abridged to freedom. And you, yeah. the, the question I have for you is, do you think that some of the recent current events that have just shown up because of scientists that showed there's a problem with the vaccine, with SV40 in it, with DNA plasmids, when that stuff wasn't supposed to happen? And when you consider some of the legalese that was in the, the uh, emergency authorization, I'm concerned that the things that happened 
in that lab with David Ferry, the exact same things that they did before we knew about how molecular biology worked. They used a LINAC to create small little pieces of DNA and SV40 to concentrate something. And it's beyond me how now we know because of Kevin McKiernan and because of Philip Buckholtz, two guys who probably you would have fought against in the last 10 or 15 years, now have shown beyond a shadow of doubt that the same thing that Mary Stewart and Sarah Stewart wrote in the treaties that was found the day David Ferry died, that's the smoking gun that Garrison had. That- Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, the, that book is very compelling, but I don't, I don't know. I, do you know the story of SV40? No. So SV40 was, in the early polio vaccines, they were growing the polio virus on, on a substrate of, um, of um, masticated monkey kidneys. African green monkeys. Oh, yeah, they were using African green monkeys. They, they were also, there's other forms of the vaccine. Um, Stanley Kopensky uh, uh, was using Bonobo chimp chimpanzees, which... There's a whole book about that's where the HIV virus uh, made the leap into human beings. Um, but anyway, what they didn't know at that time, because they couldn't, you couldn't see viruses. You can't find them. Uh, you know, they're too small. There was no microscopes at that time. That also could, remember, DNA was discovered in 53. This is going yeah. on in 50, 51, 52. So the state of molecular biology at that time was what I would call rudimentary. Right. So that, well, what they didn't realize, these monkeys had hundreds and hundreds of viruses that, um, that nobody knew what would happen if they jumped into human beings. And now you're, and, and what they, well, there was a, a very, very famous scientist who was the most award-winning scientist at that time in NIH, uh, whose name was Bernice Eddy. Ah. And I, I think she actually knew Mary she, Stewart. No, no, not only did she know her, that, yeah, you're making me very happy, Bobby, because guess what? <laughs> the fact that you know Bernice, because I'm going to tell you, the guy Kevin McKiernan I just told you about, yeah. I tweeted at him yesterday. I said, when I talk to Bobby tomorrow, I'm going to make you as famous as Bernice <laughs> Eddy because her career was destroyed yeah. for telling the truth. She's the one, uh, and he'll know this this story better, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I'm, I get excited when you, <laughs> you get right there. Marcus Hilleman, who was a leading researcher for Merck, gets all he, the credit. He invented the MMR vaccine. Right. And he gets all the other. credit, though, for this story that Bobby is laying out. And, yeah, and ju just to tell you kind of briefly what it is, she discovered that there were the virus, there's all these viruses in it. And 1955. One, right, and one of the viruses... They were, she called them simian viruses, so SV. And the 40th for. one she discovered um, was a virus that was extraordinarily uh, um, uh, oncogenic, and it was carcinogenic. It didn't cause cancer in the African green monkeys, but to date, right. as of 2023, any time SV40 is in another vector, it causes cancer. Yeah, in fact, they use it in, in laboratories that are studying tumors, they use it to induce tumor growth. So you, you give it to a, a, a guinea pig and it will sprout 
tumors like a mushroom field. You know, it's the most it's the most carcinogenic stuff that they that they know of. At least that when I was looking at it, it it's was absolutely the most still the truth. Why was this research happening in the fifties? Well, what were they I trying could, well, to they do? Were, no, they were they were making. Uh, polioviruses on the substrate. So the way that you grow a vaccine. Why though? To get the make, make a vaccine. I see. When you mass produce a vaccine, you need to grow the culture, and the the you have to grow it either on human tissue, which is hard to get, and you know legal problems and ethical and moral problems. Or you can, and also there there are disease problems because if the human has a disease, it could get in. The, you know the the vaccine is not pure. Oh, a lot of that, that, that monkey material is getting into the vaccine and the viruses were getting into the vaccine. And Bernice Eddy, right before they distributed the vaccine, there was 98 million doses about to be distributed. She goes to her bosses at NIH and said, you can't do it because it's filled with this uh, carcinogen that's going to give everybody cancer. She injected, just so you know, she injected the monkeys with the cutter vaccine and they got polio. But here's where the story... I'm yeah, gonna, that is kind of another part of that story. Well, let me tell you the part that I want you to hear. So guess who is a big investor in Cutter Pharmaceuticals? Alton Osher. So oh, what did yeah. he do? He got the entire medical staff in 1951 in the amphitheater, brought his two grandchildren in, and injected his granddaughter and grandson. Oh, yeah, and they died. And the grandson died of polio yeah. five days later. And then guess what? The granddaughter got polio. She survived. So who tells me this story is J John Osher, the guy that I told you before. It's an unbelievable anyway, Bernice story. Eddie, but hold, hold, where it Bernice goes. Eddie reports this to her bosses at yes. NIH. And they ignore her. They tell her to shut her mouth. Wow. Because there was so much publicity at that time that they had this vaccine that was going to eliminate polio. And it was, you know, it was like a, a freight train or, a, you know, a, a, an engine that they could not stop. At this point, they said, no, we can't put the brakes on this thing. So they, she then kept her mouth shut. But then about six months later, she was at a... New uh, York Academy of Science meeting. Right. She went to... A, <laughs> She went to a conference of scientists and she, you know, was so frustrated at, at that conference, which was an insider's group, he told them, and they and and NIH went berserk. They moved her to the basement, they took away her laboratory, they took away her telephone, and they told her that she was not allowed to talk to anybody without permission from the NIH bosses. And, you know, she really... Uh, she was scrubbed from scientific history. Yeah. But so was the people that worked with Bernice. And by the way, our generation, which is, you know, I'm, I'm 69. How old are you? 60. Yeah, so my generation was that baby blue generation. We all got that vaccine this year. And, you know, I, I think the soft tissue cancer, which are the ca uh, cancers that it causes, are 10 times what they were in the previous generation for my generation. All these, you know, uh, breast cancers, colon cancers, et cetera. And in many of those cancers, in, in the tumors, they find SV40. Wow. So, Rick, think about this. Who was the first head of the National Cancer Institute? Alton Osher. Who was one of his best friends? Richard Nixon. Who declared the war on cancer? 1971. Richard Nixon and Alton Osher in the backseat of a Lincoln Continental. I told you I had the picture of it, right? So you asked Bobby a question earlier. How and why? 
Alton Oshner knew that he caused a huge problem. So what was the solution? To go find the two best scientists in the world that could somehow figure out how to inactivate SV40. What was the idea? To go get an off covert ops through the four congressmen I told you about in Louisiana, Hale Boggs being one of them, and they got a, a Hill Burton grant for Oshner to get a LINAC. The LINAC was put in the basement of the U.S. public. The LINAC is a linear accelerator. Right, which is one of the most complex and expensive pieces of machinery. Even today it is. But just so you know, Bobby. And it was put in a... A U.S. public health hospital across the street from Children's Hospital yeah. on Henry Clay Boulevard. Makes no sense. Well, it makes a lot of sense when you understand the story that I want you to understand and how I came to know this stuff and why I came out so hard and heavy against COVID, you know, before the vaccines in 2020. When I told all my members, if you take this, you are going to have a problem down the road because I felt... And I've been vindicated now that the same things that happened in that underground lab on Magazine Street and at the U.S. Public Health Hospital would show up in Cutter 2.0, which is what we're living through right now. And guess what? Kevin McKiernan was the first guy who did what Bernie said he did. He said, look, just so you know, he's the guy that worked on the Human Genome Project. He's a molecular biologist, very, very good guy. He now works in the cannabis industry doing molecular biology for them. He happened just to take some expired vials, decided to check it, and he found the DNA plasmids, which shouldn't be in there, according to all the- Or the SV40, or- and, and regular DNA plasmids, and he reported it. So who got on his case? This guy named Philip Buckholz, who is a, a huge uh, geneticist from the University of South Carolina. So they got into a Twitter war, and, and Buckhall said, oh, I'm just going to cut to the chase and prove this asshole wrong. So he does the same things, takes the same vials, and finds exactly the same result. The reason I'm concerned now, because I made the... What does Buckhall do? Does he come clean? Oh, he's, he's an academician who's totally part of the vaccine lobby. Yeah. But guess what? Now he's confirmed the modern-day Bernicetti's finding. So now where we are... And I know you've been busy the last couple of weeks. This is the latest current events going on in this world. Yeah, I, I, I saw references to it, but I haven't, that they've now found. They've found it. And the reason why this is interesting. These contaminants. In the, well, why don't you explain what they are? What, what the DNA plasmid is. And I want to go back to really what Sarah Stewart, Mary Stewart, and the LINAC meant for this. Why? did Oshner get in this game? He was trying to solve a problem that he caused. So he thought by radiating these viruses is a good idea. Sarah Stewart was the smart, smart, smart one. She went to medical school at the University of Chicago with Sarah Stewart, and she was the first one that ever came up with the idea that viruses cause cancer. Everybody in the NIH at that time thought she was batshit crazy, so they put her to the side until the stuff with polio showed up. Then she gets reassigned from the NIH to the U.S. Public Health Hospital, where Mary Stewart is there. So what is Sarah Stewart? Because Sarah Stewart wrote the recipe of how the science is done. Jim Garrison found it in David Ferry's apartment when he was dead, okay? 
Sarah is the Einstein who's the theoretician to figure this out. Mary Stewart was the experimenter. She is the one that was trained in nuclear physics at the University of Chicago. She knew how to use a LINAC. So what did Ostner do with the help of the people in the government? Remember, these are the people, Russell Long, who used to be UEP Long's son, is a prominent senator. Ellender, Hale Boggs, there's all four. They controlled the entire military they, budget. And one of the guys uh, get fried in that linear accelerator. That's the story that I'm, I wanna get to, Bobby, because guess what, <laughs> who got fried? It was Mary Stewart. Yeah, that's right. And Mary Stewart gets fried, why? Because what was the Explain goal? Explain getting fried, that's a- uh, Well, we're gonna get there, but th there's parts of this that you need to I, hear. I, I, I remember reading about it, but it's not a good thing to walk into one no. of those. Well, there was a yeah, guy- yeah. Literally, <laughs> apparently not. There was a guy that actually built linear accelerators. His name was Nygaard, and he happened to walk in front of one, and he completely disintegrated. Yeah. Like, he had no body left. But here's where the story gets interesting. So what did Ostner do? He gets the people to give him a Hill Burton grant. Hell Boggs is one of those guys. They buy this machine, put it in the U.S. Public Health Hospital, reassign Sarah Stewart, get Mary Stewart from Ostner to go over there, and then begin to irradiate the SV40 virus to try to kill it. And what did they find experimentally? That they actually strengthened it, and it became a bioweapon. So That's unbelievable. No, it's not unbelievable, because guess what? We know how it works, why? Because let's fast forward now to today's scientist. Why did I warn people this was gonna come? This guy Schlemmer figured out, this is ancient, you know, to guys like Buchholz and, and McKiernan, that 7% of DNA is naturally transmitted from the virus into humans. That's the base rate. When you add an X-ray, like the electromagnetic spectrum to the mix, you stimulate DNA repair. So you concentrate the effect. That's effectively what Mary Stewart found. Why doesn't modern day McKiernan know this? Bobby probably is already putting this together because this was a covert operation that was never published in the literature. So he has nothing to go back and say, why did this happen? I'm telling you why it happened. Because at the time in New Orleans, when Ostner saw that he couldn't solve the SV40 problem, he actually saw another way to take care of his Cuban problem. If you make this virus and put it in tobacco or get somebody to inject, guess what? You can induce cancer literally overnight, even in humans. And guess what Ferry, Judith Ferry Baker, Lee Harvey Oswald, and, and Mary Stewart found that it worked. Why did Clay Shaw get put on trial by Garrison. Why was he the guy? Because the day before Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream, Clay Shaw drove his black Cadillac to Clinton, Louisiana with David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald, where they transferred a patient from Angola prison to a mental hospital in Clinton, Louisiana. Why did they pick Clinton? Because it's a sleepy little town, mostly black, nobody would be there. But what magically happened that day to let you know that the orthodoxy behind his uncle and his father's ultimate demise was coming, Lee Harvey Oswald decided to register to vote in the middle of a black town the day of I Have a Dream speech. And the reason for that 
is because that's the day they were going to inject the bioweapon into the prisoner. When did all hell break loose? It worked. They brought Judith Very Baker up to test the prisoner who got the cancer literally and was dead within two weeks. She went nuclear on Alton Ostrom because she was promised as part of this lab that she would be able to go into Tulane Medical School, get advanced standing because of all the work that she was doing with Sarah Stewart and Mary Stewart. So she takes off. Alton Oshner says, you're never going to medical school. You're done. Just so you know the timeline here, this is the end of August of 63. The timeline between the people in the book that you talked about before, this was a race. Do we get Kennedy or do we get Castro? Then they knew that they had this weapon. Here was their problem. Do you remember when Lee Harvey Oswald defected to Russia and then went to Mexico and everybody was like, this seems like the weirdest story. They needed him to defect to Russia so that he could get in to Cuba to deliver the bioweapon. Turns out there was a big fly in that ointment that Castro was on top of that. So what happens eventually? The whole lab dissipates, goes away. Six months later, after his uncle was killed, um, Mary Stewart is going back to continue her research and magically the kill switch there's a huge problem. She grabs it with her right hand, pulls it down. Her right arm is completely disintegrated. Her thoracic cavity is exposed, underlying organs exposed. This, of course, makes big news in New Orleans. It's in the Times-Picayune. And the NOPD says that it was a mattress fire that caused this problem. Well, they took her body and put it in there. They moved the body from the U.S. Public Health Hospital to there, and here's the thing, Nick Chetta. Uh, to her apartment, and, uh, and, Nick and Chetta, then they had a mattress. Right, and they lit it on fire. They lit on fire, but it only half burned, and uh, it just was, uh, you know. There was no way that the forensics matched the injury. Yeah, and anybody I, actually, knew that. I think in that the book that you gave me before, I think it was Mary's Monkey, the, mm -hmm. the author of that book uh, describes kind of graphically and very interesting that he, he goes to a lot of crematoriums mm -hmm. and he interviews the people in the crematoriums about what does it take to actually uh, disintegrate a human body. And it has to get up to, you know, hundreds. 2,000 C, because what's always left is yeah. the bones. But remember, and her he, autopsy photos how, show how, she has no how, right arm. How the hot, bones aren't even there. Right. How hot? Yeah, that's right, because... the. The, the crematorium said, and you can't get rid of the bones. Right? So, they have to grind it up. That's actually what's in your ashes. I mean, people probably listen to this are probably like, great, I don't want to know at, this now. Then he looks at the calculator. Then he talks to people about uh, what temperature a mattress burns at. And the mattress was just singed. It wasn't even, like, properly burned. Yeah. Long story short, though, this murder goes down six months after his uncle's killed. But do you know why? because that she was the only link. What happens in the autopsy, Nick Chetta, the same guy we talked about, Ferry, does the autopsy on her and finds that there was a surgical wound placed between her sixth intercostal space. Neither one of you are doctors, but you happen to be sitting next to one. I'm gonna tell you, that's exactly a kill shot to get into someone's heart. And why was that the case? Because when she got this electricity, she wasn't grounded. And I went down to this hospital when I was a resident and there was huge grounding things on either side. Okay. That current went straight through her. She was still alive when 
this injury happened. So they transport her. The reason they had to get rid of her is because she was the hard link evidence back to Osher. And that was the thing that I was very concerned about. Now, I didn't tell you this earlier. How did I put all this together? You know who my emergency room nurse was my first month of residency? Virginia Garrison. She worked with me at Charity Hospital. And uh, what is her relationship to Jim? She's Jim's daughter. And she told me, she goes, I know that later in your neurosurgery residency, you're going to go to Austin. She goes, I want to tell you, be very careful when you go over there. And I thought, you know, this was like shocking because this is, this is a woman who was just like her dad. She was a bulldog. And I'll never forget what she said to me. She goes, just be careful, especially with the sons of Alton, because at that time, Alton Osher died in 81. He was dead about nine or 10 years. And everybody in New Orleans to this day still, you know, thinks glowing things about him. But when I got into neurosurgery and I started to realize going down to the basement, the Linac moved from Mary Stewart injury. They called the Linac guy up to reconfigure the platinum hood. It shows up in the basement of the place I do my residency. Where is it now? Uh, well, I can't tell you where it is now, but it was in the basement of my residency when I graduated in 99. And I can tell you that I used it with the neurosurgeons there to do brain tumor surgery, acoustic neuromas, and things like that. The reason I want to bring this up to you is because I had the opportunity to talk to J.O. before he died. And he told me straight up that his dad worked for the FBI and he worked for the CIA. And the reason that nobody knew that Tulane University was on par with Harvard, Hopkins, and the Mayo Clinic is because this stuff, the stuff that you wrote about in Fauci's book about Fort Detrick, I want you to know the original lab was on Magazine Street, and it was in the U.S. Public Health Hospital. It was then transferred to the Yerkes lab that I worked at as a resident, and then in the Yerkes lab, I happened to work with an anesthesiologist whose dad is the first, really the first person that ran the Delta Primate Center in Covington. So hopefully your question that fits maybe, this would be probably chapter zero of your Fauci book. Where did all the stuff that Ostner and Ferry and Mary Stewart go? It's my belief that it went to the Delta Primate Center in Covington, Louisiana. And that happened in 61, on 64. Where was it eventually transferred? To Fort Detrick. And that's when Bobby Kennedy's book picks it up. And the reason why I think this is important, Bobby, especially with you running for president now, my belief is if we forget history, we're doomed to repeat it, and I'm seeing it unfold. This story that started with your family back in the, in the 50s and 60s is now manifesting Right now, I, I'm, this is how I feel, and I probably shouldn't get political about this, but I'm going to. The day your uncle was killed, the heart of the American populace was removed. In 68, when Martin Luther King and your dad were killed, that's when the head and the soul of the country was mortally injured. I think what you're doing right now, the way you've come to run, this is the heart transplant that America needs right now. It's a travesty considering what we've talked about today, what your family's been through and what you've done. I mean, let's face it, you put the target on your back. I, I will say this, yes, because it's of interest what you said.
This morning I had a guy come over my fence. That's why I was late getting here. <laughs> and um, uh, a guy who had pre previously sent me a week ago uh, an email through another person that gave it to me, um, uh, threatening to put a bullet in my head. Um, and when I, and this morning, my security guards saw him come over the fence and, you know, were able to arrest him. But that's why I was late coming here. And I mean, one of the issues, you know, I worried about my family. Of course. Um, and my wife was doing a Twitter space at the time and watched him come over and then get arrested. Um, but... Um, and also, it, it's it's disturbing, you know, to every. It ought to be disturbing to every American because it's it's part of this politicization uh -huh. of the law enforcement agencies, you know, which we've seen. Which is uh -huh. uh, one of the first things my dad did when he got to the Justice Department was to call all of the attorneys into a conference and say there's going to be no political prosecutions here. Um, that you know we treat everybody the, uh, the same, and you know he ended up prosecuting people who he knew well, including his brother-in-law, um, for you know for on an antitrust issue. So um, you know. Um, uh, President Biden has a, a bus, my father behind him on the Oval Office, and, uh, you know, but this is, you know, something my father felt very strongly about, about not politicizing uh, the CIA, the FBI, the Secret Service, and the IRS, etc. And it's disturbing that that's happening today. But it is so relevant to what's happening, which is really the, the decline of the republic. You know, and, and we know it's going to happen at some point. There's no empire that's lasted uh, this long. And, and actually, democracy is such a tiny sliver of the human experience. There's never really been, you know, a, a democratic government. Democratic government is rare in the human experience. Uh, we know, you know, it's unstable and it's, uh, it's fragile. And we know that it can't last forever, but I don't think any of us saw it, it declining so precipitously. My uncle came into office with this, um, with a real antipathy toward war. You know, he immediately encountered the military-industrial conflict, and he said that he didn't want African children to, uh, and Latin American children and Asian children, when they heard about the United States of America, to think of a man with a gun. He wanted him to think of a Peace Corps volunteer of, a, um, of the Kennedy Milk Program, which gave nutrition to tens of millions of malnourished kids around the world, and, and, um, and the Alliance for Progress and USAID, which he created to put America on the side of the poor, to end run the military juntas, the oligarchies, who were hoarding American dollars at that point and instead, you know, put it into actually building middle classes in this country and creating democracy. And then four months in, you know, the Bay of Pigs invasion, he was lied to by Dulles, by Richard Bissell, by Charles Cabell, the three top officers of the CIA. And when the men were dying on the beach, which was the lowest point in his presidency, he, uh, he publicly took the blame for the invade for the you know for that episode, but privately he said to his aides, "I want to take the CIA, shatter it into a thousand pieces, and scatter it to the winds." Bobby, I don't think a lot of people know how all these pieces all fit together. I cannot believe that the president of this country 
doesn't have the common sense to protect you, irrespective of what the rules and everything else say. Just for what your family's been through, we owe it to you as taxpayers. And for him to make that decision, to me is unforgivable, absolutely unforgivable. And for anybody to question you why you're not gonna run as a Democrat and you're gonna run as an independent, that alone stands as a perfect reason why you need to do it. The key thing is people need to know that freedom is under attack. It's under attack in many different ways. The, the architects that Eisenhower talked about are now taking pitchforks, chainsaws, and nuclear weapons to the pillars of this country, what's in our constitution. And we, all of us collectively have to come together and say, you know, we're sick and tired of this shit. We need to take the country back. We need to do what's right. We may not always agree on every single issue, but the one issue that we do need to agree about, this country is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's in the founding documents. But guess what? John Adams and Thomas Jefferson never thought that the angle of attack to the U.S. Constitution would be Anthony Fauci. And it took 200 years to get there until we get the, the Bayh-Dole Act and back it up with the 86 vaccine. People forget. The, Bi the Bayh-Dole Act is the act that allowed um, researchers at NIH to collect royalties on any medical product that they work on. And actually, NIH... So it incentivizes them. Oh, well, it, it, it incentivizes exactly kind of the perverse. It's a perverse incentive that encourages a regular. The regulators is supposed to find problems with the product. Yes. And you know the you got now. I, I'll give you an example. The Moderna vaccine is owned by NIH. Half of it, so half the royalties go to NIH, and then. Uh, and then there's six individuals that were handpicked by Anthony Fauci who work for NIH who have marching rights for the patent. So they can uh, get royalties of $150,000 a year for, the entire, for as long as that product's on the market, as mRNA vaccines, which will be indefinitely on the market. So they're paying for their houses, their kids' education, their boats um, with that. And you don't, you know, they now have very little incentive to find problems with that product. Their incentive is to make sure that there's maximum uptake of that product because that, uh, that maximizes their, their uh, income. Oh, the, the mercantile ambitions of these individuals and of the institution itself, as you can see, will ultimately nat naturally subsume the regulatory function of the agency, which is to protect public health above anything else. Um, it's, not a, it's not a good system. And that all started the Bayh-Dole Act, which I think is 1984. 19, 1980. And then 1980, the 86 yeah. Act came in. But the, the point that I, I want to add to the Sunday he just built for you, this is the cherry, just realized in the last four months that Anthony Fauci and Collins got royalties over $350 million. Just realized that- Well, the Ant two of them did not get those royalties. People who worked, yeah. They, but they get to dictate where the money goes. That's right.
Tell me your understanding of the medical industrial complex. I, I, I don't know whether you'd call it a cartel, but it's a, it's kind of what I would describe as a corrupt merger of state and corporate power. Oh, it's all of these, uh, the, 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 the dynamics and mechanisms of what, what, of what we call agency capture, by which the regulated industries, um, the, the, the regulator becomes a sock puppet for the industry it's supposed to regulate. There's a, you know, there's a well-documented phenomena that uh, happens everywhere and kind of in, to different extents in, in agencies all over the world and in every state. Uh, but it's, it's on steroids in the United States because um, uh, there are, you not only have a pharmaceutical industry that's making, that is now the biggest industry in the world, um, but you also, you have uh, the regulatory agencies that are financially tied to the pharmaceutical industry. For example, 50% of, or 45% of, uh, of FDA's budget comes from pharma, which is crazy. It's like if I, you know, I, I, EPA is a captured agency. It's captured by oil and coal and pesticide, not by pharmaceutical. But I... It'd be hard for me to imagine how bad, how much worse EPA would be if uh, if it got fifty percent of its revenues from coal companies, which it doesn't, and it, and it was dependent on yeah. you know on the coal companies making money. Yeah. Um, when I, I sued Monsanto, you know, we came across um, emails that showed that the head of the pesticide division at Monsanto for a decade was secretly working for, uh, I mean, the head of the pesticide division at EPA was secretly working for Monsanto and he was taking instructions from them. And, you know, at one point they tell him to kill a study that's being done by another agency. And he said, that's not even my agency. I'm gonna kill it for you, but you gotta give me a gold medal. And the first two cases, <laughs> they wouldn't let us show that to the jury. The third judge did, and that's why we got 2.2 billion, and that is what brought Monsanto to the negotiating table. But that goes on throughout the industry. But what's happening with the public health agencies where 45% of CDC's budget goes to purchasing uh, vaccines and then promoting their uptake. So. You don't get promoted at CDC by finding problems with vaccines. You get promoted by increasing uptake. And that's how your salary, your evaluations, your promotions are all linked to that. And then NIH, which is you know the FDA, CDC, and NIH. NIH, as I explained earlier, the people at NIH are actually allowed to collect royalties on the vaccines they work on. NIH is now the biggest incubator of pharmaceutical products. It used to do straight science, but what it does now is it um, it produces uh, new drugs for the pharmaceutical industry and then profits on them. So their, their regulatory function has become corrupted. And then you have these other very, very troubling ingredients, which is the involvement of the military and the intelligence apparatus in vaccine production. Um, which is, and, and with other drugs too. Uh, but vaccines are a, a, a component of every bioweapon. So, and we started, a, a, but we launched a bioweapons arms race after the anthrax attacks in 2001. 
And, you know, bioweapons had been illegalized prior to that. Um, but the Patriot Act uh, has a provision in it. And I'll, I'll tell you what, what can I tell you a little bit about the history? Please. Okay, you talked about Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip was the first CIA project. So it began literally in 1947, the, year, the, the month that the CIA was created, and the first mission of the CIA was Operation Paperclip, which was a project to smuggle, to take the Nazi scientists who had worked on missile production, on, um, on, uh, on uh, bioweapon production, chemical weapon production, and make sure they weren't hanged at uh, at Nuremberg, because a lot of them had engaged in those in those endeavors in creating those. They had used slave labor, and you know, um, uh, the Ig Farben, which created the Zyklon B gas that was used to gas um, uh, the Jews at Auschwitz and the other death camps was the biggest pharmaceutical company. It was, it, was, um, it was a major player in the Third Reich. There were entire trials at Nuremberg that are called the IG Farman trials where their entire executive suite was jailed because they were, I think they had 60,000 slaves and they worked to death 30,000 of those. They were also doing a lot of human experimentation and all of this kind of stuff. But they were developing gases and um, and they were developing bioweapons for the Third Reich, which during the World War II they didn't use. Japan had a much more extensive program under a, um, a scientist that was called Shiro Ishii, who was like the Mengali of Japan. And he they had an extensive bioweapon program. They killed, they used bioweapons during their war with China, which was happening simultaneously to World War II. And they killed half a million Chinese using bioweapons. They're the only ones really to deploy it on, on at scale. And they, um, and so the CIA's job was to go get those scientists, make sure they weren't executed, uh, give them new names, give them new identities, um, and then bring recruit them over. Recruit them, basically. What? Recruit them. Recruit them to Fort Detrick um, or to, you know, there's some other biolabs that we had in the United States so that they could, we could put them to work developing bioweapons here. Um, our bioweapons, we began pouring money in. It was, it was run by George Merck. So the head of Merck, um, uh, Roosevelt recruited him to run it. And it was being run, uh, it was run between 1947 and 19, um, and 1969. You know uh, Stanley Gottlieb. Absolutely. Who, uh, who was, <laughs> he was one of the, you know, the really terrible human beings who was running MK Ultra programs and Operation Artichoke. MK, MK Naomi, MK Dietrich, MK Ultra. The MK prefix means mind control. So they were studying, they were using, um, they were using uh, LSD. Uh, you know, yeah, well, they did everything. They did psychotropic drugs. They did hypnosis. They did sensory deprivation. They did all kinds, developing all kinds of poisons, all kinds of uh, uh, torture devices and propaganda. And they were studying at hundreds of universities where they were, you know, pumping money to social scientists at universities to study how do you control human behavior on an individual basis 
including how do you create Manchurian candidates, involuntary assassins, uh, and then how do you do a mass uh, control? You know, what are the propaganda techniques that work? If, a, if a, a foreign entity wants to impose control on indigenous cultures, you know, so, and they were studying all these things for years, and those, um, and, uh, and those used a lot of chemicals which were tied into Fort Detrick, which was the big lab that was created around that time. Um, and then, uh, but they were also dosing, they were doing open air, they did over a hundred open air trials where they uh, they would try out chemicals. They would uh, they would dose San Francisco or they would dose some other American city. They, they did dosed, St. Louis. Yeah, the New York City subway systems. That's true. Um, they dosed National Airport, the the air conditioning system. They were do they were do uh, probably fifty cities in the United so States. From the beginning, they weren't doing this to control other people. They were developing these to control. They were testing it on America. One, to test the vulnerability of America to a foreign bioweapons attack. This is what they said they were doing. They were, the, and by the way, it was all being supervised by Nazi scientists. Uh, it <laughs> that, was really a bizarre. It's, cr it's so crazy. I mean, Bobby- It's too much. It's unbelievable. In 1969, they had reached nuclear equivalence. They could kill the entire U.S. population, they said, for 29 cents per death, which was better than you could do with a nuclear bomb, with a nuclear bombs. Oh, that year, Nixon does the greatest thing that he, he did, which is he goes to Fort Detrick and he said, we're shutting it all down. It's the only they, thing I think he did in his presidency that was good. They realized that, well, he passed the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, he created EPA. You know, he did a lot of it kicking and screaming, but he did some good stuff. So, um, but what they realized is that they were creating poor man's nuclear bombs, that if they could keep a monopoly on nukes, that they were in good shape because there's only a few people could afford the program. If you develop a bioweapon, you do, the scientist who develop it gets, gets his credentials from publishing. So they were publishing what they were doing. You know, they weren't widely read, but you know, they were accessible to anybody who wanted them, and it, they basically gave them blueprints for creating these things in a garage. Wow. And so, and they realized we're creating things that are gonna be used against us, and, and that can be developed on a busman's budget with nuclear equivalents. Yes. So they, they realized this is a bad thing, and, uh, and Nixon and Kissinger, decided to shut it down, and they unilaterally shut down all bioweapons developments. Um, right at the time, they were closing Fort Detrick. They were destroying all of their stocks. The CIA, Stanley Gottlieb, Sidney Gottlieb, went in, who's this guy who was this really insane scientist who was, one of his principal obsessions was head transplants. Um, which he was doing a lot of on primates. He was, you know, trying. He was. I told trying. Rick, I have, I actually have pictures from <laughs> the Yerkes lab. I actually showed it to him yesterday, of the things that I used to see, that we would take the skulls off, put the wires in, and do all kinds of different things. People don't realize that yeah, this uh, stuff was going on in American universities everywhere. I and mean, Tulane was one of the CIA's hotspots, which is why. Nobody to this day knows that they were on par with Harvard, Hopkins, and Mayo. 
So uh, in 69, he says, all over. Gottlieb goes in there into the, the Fort Detrick lab and takes the worst cultures that they had and smuggles them out and stores them in warehouses in New York. And so the CIA maintains its ability to continue to develop these cultures. Um, in 73, thanks to Nixon, basically 100 countries signed a bioweapons charter making it illegal to research bioweapons, et cetera. That shut it down, kind of. The CIA was secretly still doing it with Battelle, you know, Battelle, the engineering firm, and they developed an anthrax bomb. They did it all top secret and illegally. But generally, it was shut down in this country. And then in 2000, um, in, on 9-11, we get attacked. And a week later, there's an anthrax attack. And the anthrax is then used as a pretense. It was, it's blamed on Saddam Hussein. And it's used as a pretense to go to war with Iraq and to pass the Patriot Act. 45 days. Yeah. Who got, who got hit with the, with the anthrax? The two senators who were leading the fight against the Patriot Act. Lady. The Patriot Act was taken off the shelf. Uh-huh on 9-11 and rammed through Congress. Nobody read it. The only congressman to re actually read it was Dennis Kucinich, who was, uh, you know, until recently running my campaign. Also, you give credit to Barbara Lee. She's the one that voted against it and took a lot yeah, of heat. And Kucinich voted against yeah. it, too. So they, um, but what the, the Patriot Act then, the, the two senators who were sent anthrax were the two guys who were leading the fight against the Patriot Act, Tom Daschle and, and Leahy. Uh, and Leahy. And they, it shuts down Congress. The act passes in record time. You know, nobody's read it. But one of the provisions of the Patriot Act says that the bioweapons charter still stands and the Geneva Convention, which, you know, made a death penalty for developing bioweapons, still stands. However, no federal officer can be prosecuted for violations of those acts. How do you like that? Indemnification. So they, they basically, they got rid of the, the Patriot Act. Now, what happened, the backstory is the FBI investigates the origins of anthrax, which are, we're already at war with Saddam for, for hitting us with anthrax. And after a year, the FBI determines this was Ames anthrax, a highly sophisticated weaponized Ames anthrax. That could only have come from Fort Detrick. How do you like that? So it was, it was somebody associated with Fort Detrick, which either has to be the Army or the CIA. Uh, Inside was, job. Right. Was it to be. Yeah. No question. And it got the Patriot Act. So now they've reopened the arms race, the bioweapons arms race, because now Americans. But the Pentagon is worried about launching an arms race because it is a death penalty. And what if the Patriot Act turns out not to be legitimate, right? You know, usually you can't, you can't override a treaty with uh, statutorily, you know. And so, people, that means treason, they can be well, killed. They, you, yeah, you can be hanged. Correct. It's a capital offense. Exactly. So the Pentagon didn't want to openly start a bioweapons program, so they began funneling money, about $2 billion a year, to NIH, specifically to NIAID. And they made Anthony Fauci the, um, the lead uh, uh, developer, biosecurity developer, which means bioweapons developer. Starting to see where this is all headed. And um, he then gets a 68% raise from the Pentagon. 
And that's why he was the highest paid official in American history. He was getting $450,000 a year. The president gets $400,000. So of two, I think there's 2.3 million federal employees. He gets, he got paid more than any of them. The reason was because the Pentagon had more than doubled his salary to give him responsibility for bioweapons development. Now, he immediately, he opens all these uh, BSL-4 labs in, in Boston, in Galveston, all over the country in North Carolina, and he pays for them out of this, this money. Um, but then in 2014, three of his bugs escape, high-profile escapes. They're, you know, they find leaks. They found a smallpox. You know that somebody had left in a you know in a unprotected in a lab and you know a broken box, and three hundred scientists, top scientists in the country like Richard Ebert, um, send a letter to Obama saying you have to shut down Anthony Fauci because he's going to cause a global pandemic, and Obama declares a moratorium, shuts down eighteen projects of Fauci's. And um, Fauci response to that is to move his operations to Wuhan. And that's how we end up in Wuhan. And, you know, and to share the technology, cutting edge technology with Xi Sheng Li and Ben Hu and all these scientists over there, Lin Fapan, the scientists over there who were, you know, ultimately responsible for um, for developing the, you know, the COVID-19, the virus that causes COVID-19, almost, you know, 100% certainly. Tell me about the Monsanto trial. Monsanto, you know, Monsanto's a, a company, well, Monsanto was a company that I was fighting for since I was young. I mean, I met Rachel Carson at my house when I was a boy. She had written the book, you know, up until then, we, you know, the, the pesticides and, and the pesticide scientists were the heroes. They had helped win the war against, uh, against Hitler, you know, by, by, you know, most deaths at that time were from, uh, from infectious diseases that were spread by insects. DDT had stopped malaria in its tracks, et cetera, in, in some of the, in the Japanese wars. So they had won the war against Hitler. Now they were going to win the war against the bugs, and we were going to finally have abundant food. Pests would be eliminated, et cetera. And everybody considered them the hero until 1961. Rachel Carson publishes this book that shows Americans, and she was a beautiful, beautiful writer. Her writing is like poetry. She was a, a marine biologist who not was born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and never saw the ocean until she was 22 years old. But she had this gift for conveying complex scientific concepts to the public in lay language and beautiful poetic lay language. So her book became a record, world record bestseller. Silent Spring. The first Silent book. Spring. And she uh, basically showed the public that, that, you know, although on the outside it looked like pets were being killed, we were all getting killed and our pets were getting killed and the birds were going to disappear. And they, these pests were actually, you know, critical are part of the food web for uh, America's songbird population, and that's why the, you know, the the uh, the title "Silent Spring" is that we're, you know, the bird songs are going to be extinguished. Um, she came under attack by Monsanto, which was the manufacturer of DDT. 
which did the, it did the blueprint for the you know tobacco industry and everything else. How do you discredit? How do you destroy this scientist? They did Propaganda. everything. They publicly, you know, every time they referred to her, they would call her a spinster, which was the modern uh, or the contemporary uh, uh, pejorative that suggested lesbianism, and uh, and so they went after her. She was dying of cancer. And she never rose to defend herself. My uncle appointed a commission to study the book, and the the commission came back and completely vindicated her. Said every they went through every they, she had three references for every factual assertion in the book because she knew she was going to be attacked. She was a very careful scientist. My uncle vindicated her, and DDT ended up getting banned in '73. She inspired Earth Day in '70, and then '73 DDT is banned. Monsanto needs a, uh, uh, a a new blockbuster flagship product. At that time, they somebody had invented um, uh, glyphosate as a, a as a tank to scalant to to get the corrosion and the calcification out and the rust from the inside of of um, you know of storage tanks and. Something happened. I mean, this is a simplification of a, of a long story, but somebody throws this stuff out on the, in the yard, and they see all the grass is dead. So they say, oh, this could be a good herbicide. And Monsanto, at the time, Monsanto needed a new product. So it gets this herbicide. The first 20 years, it's applied by men from backpack, farm workers' backpack spray packs. So they walk through the cornfields. where they see the weed, they spray, give it a little jolt, and it dies. They don't have to bend over and pull it up, so it saves time. In '93, somebody sprays it on on a on this is again a simplification of the story. Yes. Somebody sprays it on a weed that doesn't die, and they realize that weed has genetic uh, immunity. So they remove the gene from that weed, they identify it, and they put it in a corn seed, and now they've got a uh, they've got corn called Roundup Ready corn, which is immune to uh, to glyphosate. So now they can fire all the farm workers. They fly an airplane, one guy in an airplane over, saturate the entire landscape with Roundup, and everything green dies except the Roundup Ready corn. Yeah. It becomes very, very cheap for the first couple of years before the causes start moving in. And then, would you still call it corn, or is it a new thing? This round. <laughs> well, I, you can dispute the angels on the head of the pen, but it, it, no, it is curious. a GMO. I'm it's curious. a GMO. It's a know, GMO. Yeah. It's a GMO corn. It's an alien that lives on the planet. Now. Yeah, and uh, so then in ninety, and and so it quickly gets eighty-five captures eighty-five percent of the corn market in this country. Ninety-nine percent. And there's all kinds of other problems that go along with it. They own it, you know, uh, and they you you can't they won't give you seeds for the next year, so you have to buy it from them every year. And there's all these losses. It's a nightmare for farmers, but they end up becoming uh, getting on that gerbil wheel and not being able to get off. Um, then in nine in two thousand six, um. Uh, they discover that glyphosate, when it, they're, they're, they, by now they have Roundup Ready corn, Roundup Ready soy, I think barley, a bunch of other, so now everything's Roundup Ready, but not wheat. Wheat is where you eat most of it, it's in your bread, your pasta, you know, your cereal, all this stuff. 
Uh, they Roundup Ready, uh, so they don't have Roundup Ready wheat, but what they find is that if you spray Roundup on the wheat right before harvest, it dries it out. So if there's a rainstorm, a spring rain or a fall, autumn rain, it uh, you won't get mold on it, which which mold is a huge drain on farm income. Uh, and so they, wheat they, farmers. they tell all the farmers, start spraying it as a desiccant, and they do it. Now, what that means is that um, the Roundup, that almost all, probably 90% of the Roundup that's ever been sold has been sold between 2006 and now, because that was the biggest use. But now they're spreading, spreading it directly on food, because it's right before harvest. This stuff is ready to go to the mill. Before, they were spraying it early in the season, you know, on weeds that, uh, until they couldn't catch up with the corn, and then you don't care about the weeds anymore, right? Now, so most of it was getting washed off during the year. Now they're spraying it right on food, and all of a sudden that year you see this burst in, uh, you know, in gluten allergies and uh, and you know, uh, a celiac disease. When you say and, it washes off the food, where does it go? Well, it go it goes into the soil and it destroys the soil biome, right? Okay. Which is not good. No, so for it's anything. Not, yeah, so, it's not good so it's, for anything that's decentralized. In the short term, it destroys what it's destroying, but in the long term, if you wash it off, it destroys it's destroying photosynthesis. That's whatever what it does, the whatever which is the, the basis of the entire food web. But uh, it eventually goes in our groundwater and eventually into our waterways. Yeah, it 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 has it has uh, it doesn't have. Let me put it this way: an enduring half life. So it's not like atrazine or PFOAs that once they're in your water, that you're. Those are the forever chemicals. Yeah. yeah. Can you explain what forever chemicals are? The forever chemicals are are chemicals that uh, I mean, PFOA is the most notorious one, and I've litigated on that too. My, they made a film about my lawsuit called Dark Waters with Mark Ruffalo, on that uh, suit. But they, you know, they're they they don't. Uh, your body cannot process them. The molecules just are uh, uh, bioaccumulate, and they cause all kinds of problems, including a lot of them are endocrine disruptors, but they're carcinogenic. You know, the atrazine is the worst endocrine disruptor. You know, it literally. You know, there's this very famous experiment where this guy, a uh, doctor, uh, Tyler. Uh, I forget what his last name, but you can look at Google it. And he took 27 male frogs and put them in aquariums with water that was contaminated with atrazine at levels that were below the EPA permissible rate for drinking water. This is water that could be in the drinking water supply. Yeah, the EPA, there would be no trigger if it, up until that, yes. the, the public water supply has no duty to tell you that it's in there because it's not at a danger level. Okay, and what happened to the frogs? Of uh, the 27 male frogs, um, 20 of them became sterile. Seven of the males turned female and were able to produce fertile eggs. So, you know, it sounds incredible, but I, I, all you have to do is just Google the 27 male frogs. The, the name, the first name of the scientist is Tyler. I forget, but anyway, it's a you know, it's a it's well a, known, well known study. It's a pretty in, known, well known study in know. science. I mean, we've known about it for a long time, and it's it's a huge problem. So, yeah. did, is that one of the things that you fought against? Yeah, atrazine. Yeah, 
But, uh, and who makes atrazine? What's it used for? A pharmaceutical company. But do you know what it was used for? Yeah, it's a, it's a pesticide. Pesticide. Uh, anyway, um, with, with Monsanto, and you asked, how do you sort of break up the medical industrial complex? And I, and I can, you know, tell, and how do you get decentralized medicine? Correct. If I'm president, I can do that. And I know exactly how I'll tell do me it. that I'm very how? interested. Well, what, what you first of all, I'm going to go to NIH to Bethesda the, my first week in there, and I'm going to say to them the NIH is a 42 billion dollar budget, it's giving uh, that money to 56,000 scientists who are mainly at universities in the U.S. They're getting this, and a lot of them are doing drug development. Um, the rest of them are mainly studying infectious disease, in which there's a lot of money. And they do gain a function. So, um, but infectious disease is not the big problem in this country. Chronic disease is. We've gone from a chronic disease rate of 6% when my uncle was president, 11.8% in 1986, to 54% wow. in 2006. Uh -huh. And then NIH stopped publishing that data. So we don't know those data. We don't know what we it know, is. Today, we know it's, it's a lot higher than 54%. Yeah, that's it's probably, it's probably 60%. I mean, one out of every seven kids now has autoimmune disease. Just think about this. This is what I said to you yesterday about centralized medicine is if you look at it just on a financial basis, the return on equity, Bobby will tell you, we spend more money in this country and we get the lowest return on equity yeah. for health. It's a huge we problem. Spend, we, we have four, uh, the, the budget for health is $4.3 trillion. The military, including uh, national security, is or you know is one point three trillion. So there's four point three trillion. Three point seven trillion goes to chronic disease, and when, which was practically nothing. It was it's twenty two times higher than what was being spent in nineteen sixty, in, in relationship to GDP. So and and you know we had during COVID. This shows you, uh, you know, the impact of that. We had during COVID the highest death rate, the body count in the world. We had 16% of the COVID deaths. We only have 4.2% of the global population. I don't know why people are getting medals and, you know, million dollar awards. Or a like, Nobel Prize. Yeah. for Makes no sense. Right. Because well, we, we mishandled it. We're, we're awarding shitheads. Yeah. And, and part of that is because of mismanagement, catastrophic mismanagement and data chaos and all this stuff that went along with it. But also, we have the highest chronic disease burden in the world. And CDC said the average person who died from COVID at 38 chronic disease. So they had obesity, diabetes, asthma, and something else, right? And then some of them had eight or nine. So we're the sickest population. And that makes us more of the, these people were not dying of COVID. They were dying, you know, they, they we're dying COVID with pushed COVID. them off the cliff. Yes. So I'm going to go over there and I'm going to say, look, we're going to give infectious disease a break and we're going to find out what's causing the chronic disease epidemic. Now, Autism rates have gone from one in 10,000 in my generation. So men today, right now, of my generation, one in 10,000 have full-blown autism, which means nonverbal, non-toilet trained, uh, uh, head banging, stimming, uh, hand flapping, toe walking, the, you know, the, the uh, stereotypic uh, features of autism. One in 10,000 in our, my kids' generation, it's one in 34 children that breaks that breaks every law of yeah. neo-darwinism and darwinism so and, the, and, and everything backwards. is completely backwards congress said to uh epa tell us what year it started 
They didn't ask CDC, they asked EPA. EPA is a captive agency, but it's captured by oil, coal, and pesticide, not by pharma, because it doesn't regulate pharma. So it came back with a real science, and it said it's a red line 1989. So 1989 also was the year that all of these other crimes, many of the other ones, food allergies suddenly appeared, peanut allergies. So what happened in 89? Right. So what, okay, let me tell you what happened in 89. Okay. Neurological disease, yes. ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, Tourette's syndrome, narcolepsy, ASD, autism, autoimmune diseases, uh, rheumatoid arthritis suddenly exploded, juvenile diabetes I never saw as a kid suddenly exploded, lupus, Crohn's, all these weird, weird diseases that we never heard of, suddenly they're everywhere. And then the allergic diseases like peanut allergies, food allergies, eczema, you never heard of eczema as a kid, right? No. Now every classroom has kids with eczema and all of these, you know, asthma exploded. My brother had asthma, he was told by a doctor, um, He's, he was told there'll never be a cure for asthma because it's so rare that nobody will ever study it. Well, now it's one out of every eight black kids in, in our city. So, uh -huh. you know, and this 89 was the banner year when all this stuff starts happening. And we know it's an environmental toxin because genes don't cause epidemics. Gene, gene, they can provide the vulnerability. Say that again. Yeah. Because you know what? That's, that's what decentralized medicine yeah. has been pounding the table about for 20 years. Yeah. And that's, see, that's... It's not genetic. It's not genetic. It can but provide guess what? Most, a vulnerability, but yes. you need an environmental toxin. Remember, remember what I said to you, remember? I said that the NIH spends their money focusing on RNA and DNA when the real problem is the mitochondrial DNA, which is the environmental smoking gun. Yeah, Bobby just said it. it, loud and clear. Yeah. So, um... There's a toxicologist, a very famous toxicologist called Phil Landry, and he's at Mount Sinai in New York, and I've used him on a lot of cases. He's shy of me because uh, he knows vaccines is a, you know, is a death trap for anybody with, of his prominence. He won't go there, but he knows something happened in 89. So he's done a bunch of papers that says, okay, what could it be? There's a limited universe of things that, that and, and you, have to, you have to find a toxin that became ubiquitous that year. So every demographic from Cubans and Key Biscayne to Inuit and Alaska are affected. Um, it, it, and then there's some other features that are interesting, which is it should be a toxin that affects boys at a four to one ratio of neurological disorders at a four to one ratio to girls, right? Because that's one of the features of, of this, that boys are deeply impacted by all these neurological injuries. And so he's come up with, I think, about 13 suspects. And, and you know, I, I can't tell you what all of them are, but PFOAs, one, these follow the timeline, which are flame retardant that was put in all of our furniture, childhood pajamas around that area. Glyphosate, okay, um, which again, you know, uh, around the early 90s, 93 is when it, it you know, they developed Roundup Ready Corn. Atrazine, neonicotinoid pesticides, same timeline, uh, cell phone, Wi-Fi radiation. EMF. Right. That's um, that's the one that Uncle Jack well, highly favors from this list that I've been teaching about. But there's yeah. a lot. I think it's actually multifactorial. Yeah, it's cumulative. Our it kids are, are, and they all they all operate on similar biological pathways, which is the connectivity between neurons that is that is uh, that dies when your immune system is stressed and you have mitochondrial Correct. weaknesses that's, and, and your, that's, that's your, the your immune system. 
begins demanding energy and your body gives that a precedence of your brain. And your brain, particularly for a kid, is the biggest demander of energy. energy. It gets 20% of the cardiac output. In children, yeah. the cardiac output is even greater than it is in adults, which is the reason why they go through exorbitant growth. Because remember, humans are the silly talking primates that aren't born with their brain fully developed until they're 25 years old. And, and then the vaccine schedule changed in 89. So we went, during this period, we went from the three vaccines I got as a kid and you got to the 72 that our kids got. And 1989 was the big change year because 86 was when they passed the Vaxine Act and immunized the country, companies from liability. So suddenly these companies made a gold rush because here's a product that, number one, you the, the federal government pays for almost all the development costs. Number two, the biggest cost to every medicine is downstream liabilities. Now that's just been eliminated. Number three, there is no advertising and um, marketing costs because the government is forcing 76 million kids to take it. Um, and number four, there's no safety testing. So vaccines are immune from pre-licensing safety testing, the only medical product, because it's essentially a military product. That's every single vaccine, Rick, just so not, you understand. Yeah, there's not one of the 72 vaccines that was ever tested properly licensed in placebo-controlled trials. Including the one that we all just were forced to That was the most best-tested one in right. history. So, okay, you ask, how am I going to fix this? I'm going to tell them, first of all, we're going to do the real science. You know, I'm going to call in the, the, the journals and say, you know, to the Justice Department and say, we're going to file racketeering suits against you for retracting these, you know, these phony you, retractions. You, just so you know, you know who made Rico statue, right? Yeah. His dad. He's yeah. the one that brought it in. And then, but also, I'm, I'm, going to just, I'm going to say we're going to study chronic disease from now on, and we're going to find out what's causing it. So he's going to fund Doug Wallace's research. What is he saying? He's going to stop with the RNA, DNA, and let's go, let's start looking now, at other places. So now you'll say, well, even if you find out for sure that a certain product is causal, these companies are so powerful and their lobby at Farm is the biggest uh, lobbying companies in the world. And, you know, let's say you find out that high fructose corn syrup yeah. is causing the obesity epidemic. You know, why is it when my uncle was president, 6% of American kids were obese, today 42% are obese and 75% are overweight. Well, how did that happen? The kids didn't just suddenly get lazy. They're being poisoned. But you also understand high fructose corn syrup is a huge industry in this country. There's millions of farmers that are tied into it. There's an entire corn lobby. There's, you know, one of the most powerful lobbies on Capitol Hill. How do you fix that? Here's how you fix it. You do enough studies that the trial lawyers are going to be able to get into court and they all start suing them, and the government doesn't have to do anything. It's just like we did with glyphosate. When we sued on glyphosate, which everybody said we couldn't do, we had enough studies to get past the Daubert hearing, which is the threshold, and then we sued them, and we made it too expensive, and they, they removed it in all uh, for home gardening. But glyphosate is still being used for other things. Agriculture, we couldn't sue for agriculture because agricultural workers are... Um, are exposed to so many pesticides. No way to figure it that out. That it was impossible. But, but home gardeners, a lot of home, the home gardeners, we were representing 40,000 in the end. 
And they all said the same thing. I bought the glyphosate because it said safe as aspirin. It said it is safe. And it said you don't even have to wear a moon suit. You can go out. And the guy on the cover we showed to the jury of the container is in uh, Bermuda sh shirts and, and shorts spraying glyphosate. So they were telling them, this is so safe, you don't have to take any precautions. And then we show they knew that it was causing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in all these people. So they've removed it from there, but we couldn't sue for, for uh, food because, um, you know, because the agricultural workers have so many covariables. So it's that, still in the food. Yeah, it's still on, it's still in the food. What, could problem. it even be in organic food or no? What we found is that if you eat organic food, that all the glyphosate is gone in 75 days from your body. Considering that you're in probably the most well thought of democratic family in the history of the country, is it odd to be cast out by your party? Well, I mean, I, fought, I feel like I fought as hard as I could to stay within the Democratic Party, but, you know, it became clear that I was not going to be allowed to uh, compete or to run. And it was, you know, the DNC has in its charter that it, um, that it's not, that it's supposed to be neutral. But what happened was, Rick, the, um, you remember in 2016, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was secretly helping uh, Hillary against Bernie. Yes. And putting not her, only her finger, but you know her leg and a lot of other stuff on this scale to make sure that Bernie couldn't win. And um, and so a group of Bernie supporters sued the DNC after that election to say, "Hey, it says in your charter you're not allowed to do that. This is like showing up." at a football game and the referees are wearing your opponent's jerseys, right? And you're not allowed to do that. So, but the federal judge, they litigated that case. And the federal judge said, yeah, they did it, they fixed it, um, but they can do it, it's legal. They're a private club, they can make up their own rules, they can change them when they want and they don't have to obey them. They can, they can run it any way they want, it's a private club. So this time, is really the first time where they've said, oh, we, we, there is no boundaries to what we can get away with now. Um, and so they came right out and they endured, publicly endorsed Biden and then they merged their campaigns. Uh, Biden and the DNC were indistinguishable. They were operating out of the same office. They were, uh, you know, DNC was fundraising and they can break all the fundraising rules. They're not bound by the rules I was of $6,600 maximum. They can get... 700,000 from an individual and basically give it right to Biden's campaign. And so, you know, I was fighting this behemoth and then they were changing the rules. They changed the New Hampshire rules so that any vote I got in New Hampshire would count for President Biden, not for me. And, you know, the whole politicization of the, uh, and the weaponization that we've seen of the law enforcement agencies with them not giving me Secret Service protection, uh, we're seeing that on every level. You know, the, uh, uh, the, the censorship that was being done of me in cooperation with, you know, with the uh, FBI and the CIA, this is all documented in Judge Doty's 155-page federal decision that's now in the Supreme Court. Um, and so it really became uh, impossible for me to, to run in the Democratic Party. And then the media also, which is a line 
the, the media outlets like CNN, MSNBC, and New York Times that are completely aligned with the with the DNC, and there's a whole lot of Democrats who that's all they read and that's all they see. And if you're living in that, if I was living in that information bubble, I would consider myself a very disreputable, crazy person because they never allowed an unfiltered interview with me on any of those outlets. And it was all, you know, just mischaracterizations of what I said or I supposedly said. And a stream of defamation, and I'm not complaining, I'm just answering your question, is this, you know, at some point it became uh, impossible for me to compete on those landscapes. And so it was an obvious choice that I had to make, and once, I, once I'm once i sure of a choice, I, I do it without regret. <laughs>